watching it recorded, but it is now. All right. John was going to press the button and he told me, I said, John, I'll press the button when it's time. Don't worry. And I didn't press the button. But we got this part. All right. Um, anyway, John was good to me. I trampled on his goodness. But he's going to press the button next week for certain. All right. So why would somebody trample on the goodness of God? Why would somebody delay to respond to God's kindness and goodness? Self-satisfaction in the way they're doing. Okay, self-satisfaction, the way the way they're living their lives, they want to do their own thing. Why else? Entitlement. Entitlement? Yeah, entitlement meaning what? They think they deserve it. They think they deserve God's goodness, no problem. I'm, God's giving me all this because I deserve it. Comfort. Comfort. Yeah, comfort. Sometimes we like the way we live, Andy. Uh, kind of related to the idea of entitlement. Um, there's also some people who have the idea, like maybe even if they recognize they don't deserve it, they just have this feeling, well, everybody's going to get saved anyway. Everybody goes to heaven. Okay, so maybe there's just this general idea that no matter what, everything's going to be good. You know, I've talked to some people who know they need to change, and they plan on doing it. They just haven't gotten around to it yet. And sometimes the goodness and kindness of God, it, it causes people to think, well, I've got more time. And there are some things over here that I probably need to fix and get right, but I'm not ready to turn loose of those things, but God's being good to me. And then, hey, eventually I'm going to get around to it, and they never get around to it. Or there's this idea of, well, you know what? The goodness of God is a stamp of approval on my life. Surely there's nothing to change because I wouldn't be being so blessed materially or otherwise if I wasn't already doing what God wanted me to do. But just remember, and Paul's going to say this, look at Romans 2, 5, and 9, 5 through 9. He's going to eventually say that God gives second chances, not simply so that because he's salt. God didn't give people second chances because he's salt. God gives second chances to sober people up so that they'll turn to him. And if we don't do that, there's only one thing left after God's given all those second chances, and that's his judgment. That's what Paul says in Romans 2, 5 through 9. He talks about the fact that if people do good, then they'll receive good. That's Romans 2 and verse 6. To those who by patience and well-doing, verse 7, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So Paul's saying, if you don't do what's right, eventually God's going to judge you. You might think you're getting away with it, but in the end, you're not. There's going to be wrath poured out on the rebellious and the disobedient. And so the goodness of God is supposed to lead us to repentance. Jews, just keep spurning that. Just keep on disobeying that, and then wrath will be yours. Now, if you work for a job, if you work on a job and the manager kept telling you every week, hey, you can't keep coming late here, over and over again. If you keep coming late, there, why would a manager keep reminding people you've got to come on time? Why would a coach keep saying, hey, if you don't perform well, I'm going to put you on the bench. You won't continue to play. Why would a school say, hey, you're going on academic probation. If you don't perform, we're eventually going to put you out. What would all of those warnings be designed to do? Accountability. Accountability to get you to change and to realize that there will be consequences for your actions. And that's where Paul ends this. Look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. Well, verse 9. We'll just start in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And so Paul's point is God didn't show favoritism. The Gentiles that didn't do what was right in the Old Testament times and even in the New, they'll be punished. But the Jews that don't do what's right, the religious people that knew the Bible, they're going to be punished too. And God doesn't show favoritism. Nobody's going to get a pass. And in verses 12 through 16, he's saying the Gentiles, they didn't have a written code of law. But sometimes even without the Bible, they live better than you Jewish people 
and they're going to be a testimony against you. You could have done better and you didn't do better. And as a result of that, you will be judged. Anybody ever play tag, freeze tag as a kid? Anybody? What happens in tag when you're on base? What happens when you're on base? Nobody can what? Nobody can touch you, right? Like you're safe no matter what happens. You made it back. You're safe. And sometimes people think that way religiously. Like in Jeremiah chapter 7, the Jewish people said to God, Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15, we've got the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God says through Jeremiah the prophet, I don't care about the temple. I'm going to take you out of the temple and then burn it down to the ground. Just because you're on spiritual base doesn't mean that God won't touch you. We might say today in 2023, a person might think this same way. Well, I'm a member of the church. I come to church every Sunday. Just because you're on spiritual base, just because you say, well, I'm a member of the church of Christ. I'm always present. I come to every worship service. That's not going to be able to justify anybody. Just because we go through these motions, Paul says, God doesn't show favoritism. God's going to look at our lives and our deeds, and based on the way we live, he's going to either reward or he's going to punish. And the Jewish people needed this wake-up call because they thought they were high and mighty and better than other people simply because they had the scriptures, but they didn't change their lives. And that's what the Bible's meant to do. All right, next, Paul gets right to the Jewish hypocrisy. Look at Romans 2. And I'm going to read 17 down through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others. Don't you teach yourself? Why you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that no one should commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So now Paul's going to deal directly with their problem. And their problem is they trusted in the law, the Jewish people did, but there really was no life transformation. Look at verse 17. He says, you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in the law. What law would that be for them? Okay. The, the law of Moses. And they thought just because the law of Moses was written to them, God didn't give the law of Moses to any other nation. Just by having the law of Moses, they felt we're better than other people. We're God's chosen people. We're special. We're elect. And Paul wants to destroy that kind of thinking. So he says, you trust in the law. You boast in the law. Verse 18, you know his will. You approve of what's excellent and you're instructed in the law. They thought just because they were more spiritually educated than other people, that that meant that they were somehow better. I don't know about you, but this is a wake up call and a sobering warning. Because knowing the Bible doesn't make you spiritually better or superior to anybody. It just means God's going to have more evidence against you if you don't conform your life to what you know. Sometimes we're really excited that we know a lot of things in Scripture, and God wants us to know it. The knowledge of God's Word is what's going to lead us to Him. But in the end, if we know a lot of things and we don't do a lot of things, there's just going to be a higher mountain of evidence and testimony against us for our hypocrisy. And that's what Paul is driving at with the Gentile, the Jews here. He's saying, you know the law, you boast in the law, verse 18. You've been instructed, verse 19. Look at verse 19. You are, you are sure that you are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. And so Paul's saying, you stand up and tell other people, hey, this is exactly how to live. God chose the Jewish nation in the Old Testament for one per two purposes, primarily. Number one, they were going to be the special group of people through whom Jesus would come. That's the primary reason God chose Israel. Nothing special about the land or anything like that. 
God chose Jewish people in the Old Testament to be his people to bring the Messiah. The second reason was, while you guys have the law and until the Messiah comes, they were supposed to be a light to the nations. Matthew 5, 16 says, so let your what so shine before men? Light before men that they may see your good works. Matthew 5, 16 comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah 49, 6. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They flunked. They didn't do it. And so Jesus says in the new covenant, you guys be the Israel that Israel could never be. You let your light so shine. God gave Israel the law so that they could live the right kind of way so that Gentiles without the law could say, you know what, that's how to live. We probably should quit the idolatry, quit the sexual immorality, quit the sacrifices to other gods and follow these Jewish people. But of course the Jewish people didn't do what they should have and so they weren't a light to the nations. But Paul says that's how it was supposed to be. Look at verse 20. You're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth you then teach others, do you not teach yourselves? Paul's saying, you guys know everything, but you do none of it. Look at Matthew 23. Let me show you what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and the way they live. Matthew 23, and notice verses 1 through 7. Question while we're turning here. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the Pharisees the good guys or the bad guys primarily? Bad guys. Why are they the bad guys? They oppose who over and over again? Jesus. They're against what Jesus says. They make rules for other people. But listen to what Jesus actually says about them in Matthew 23, 1 through 7. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but don't do after their words. For they do, for they say, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Did the Pharisees teach the right things? Yes or no? Yes. Jesus says, whatever they teach you to do, do what? Practice it, but don't follow their works. They said a lot of things, but they didn't do it. Why do you think it's easier to say and not do the Pharisees had this problem. The Jews had this problem. Why do you think it's easier to tell other people what to do than to do the right thing yourself? We go back to Romans 2 so we don't get off track. But why do you think it's easier to tell other people, this is how you ought to be living, this is what the Bible says, this is what you ought to do, but then fail to do it ourselves? Because that's Paul's beef with the Jews. This is all going somewhere. Romans chapter 1, Gentiles under sin. Romans chapter 2, Paul is just trying to make the point. The Jews are in the same condition, but he's got to mount more evidence to convince them because they would say, hey, we've got the Bible. And what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 2 is saying, you've got the Bible, but the Bible doesn't have you. And there's a difference. So question, why is it easier to know and not practice? Telling others is easy, but doing it ourselves requires effort. Yeah, telling others is easy, but doing it ourselves requires... How much effort does it take to say, hey... You know, you ought to be reading the Bible every day. You ought to stop cursing. How much effort does that take to point at somebody else and say what they ought to be doing? Not a lot. How much effort does it take to harness your own will, though, and change the way you speak and think about other people? And so we just skip that part and we'll just keep pointing at you, right? It's easier to point than to practice. That's why. It's easier to say what the other person should be doing. It's easier to have 20-20 vision concerning everybody else's sin but have my vision of spirit when it comes to my own because my sins are the ones that I really can fix and change but it's harder to do that because that actually requires work. Andy? Yeah, I think it's easier to do it 
part of that 2020 vision is also because we see it in others and we're we're eager to condemn it but when we see it in ourselves we're like well i didn't mean it that way yeah you make excuses for yourself yeah we tend to rationalize our misbehavior we never did it on purpose but everybody else always did right they meant to do it that way the first time look at what paul says in 21 and 22 he gets specific he says you teach others don't you teach yourself while you preach against stealing do you steal you who say that one must not commit adultery do not do you not commit adultery you who abhor idols do you rob temples what, what paul's talking about and just go back and read the old testament these are all of the sins that old testament Israel <laughs> practiced they knew adultery was bad they did it see numbers 25. they knew you shouldn't worship idols read first and second kings they worshiped idols they knew that a person shouldn't steal, they stole. Paul's saying, you taught others, shouldn't you teach yourself? What's one of the ways that God describes the Bible? What, what instrument does God call the scriptures in the Bible? He says that this book is a what? Sword. A sword, right? It's the sword of the spirit. What do you need a sword for? Fight your way through. To fight your way through. Fight your way through. What else? What do you use a sword to do? Defend yourself. Defend yourself, okay. What else? What do you use a sword for? Fight your way through, defend yourself, and do what? Protect to kill. So who said kill? Kill an animal. Yeah, to kill, right? So we think about using the sword only offensive to kill. The Bible is the sword of the spirit, right? What are we supposed to use the sword to kill, though? Who's? Ours first. See, the Bible's not merely a defensive weapon to guard against other people. It's the sword that's supposed to cut off the sin and wickedness in my life first. It's not the little knife that I go around and juke everybody else with so that I can draw their blood. <laughs> the Bible primarily is a sword to be used on our own souls and spirits. So then we'll be well enough to go out and help <coughs> people. Paul's saying, you taught others and you did the very same thing. God is dishonored by their disobedience. That's verse 23. He says they boast in the law, but they dishonor God by breaking the law. And then in verse 24, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So in the end, the Jewish people, how well did they do it shining the light for other people? How well did they do? They didn't do good. So the Gentiles in Romans chapter one, they're being punished because of their wickedness and sin. Did they deserve it? Everybody's like, I don't want to judge anybody now. <laughs> you can say it. Paul says it. It's all right. Did the Gentiles deserve the wrath of God for how they live? Yes or yes? Yes. Okay. Jewish people show up and they say, hey, shame on them. Paul in Romans chapter 2, Jews, you had the law. You didn't do better. Did the Jews deserve the wrath of God? Yes. Why? Even though they had the law, they didn't what? They didn't practice it. So who's under God's judgment? Jews or Gentiles? Yes. Everybody. And we'll get to that in chapter 3. What do you think in this section, and we're about to finish chapter 2 and move into chapter 3, what do you think the practical application is for us in this section? Remember Romans 1, the Gentile world, and I said the best we could do with trying to make this apply to 2023 is this. The best we probably could do is say the Gentile world, the unbelieving world, we know why they're getting punished, worldliness and ungodliness. And you could say that might be somebody that didn't grow up in the church. They don't have a religious background or context. But Romans chapter 2 probably would apply to us in this way, more so dealing with people that knew the scriptures, that grew up going to Bible class, going to worship. But when you read Romans chapter 2, and Paul's basically making the same argument over and over again. Jews, you knew better, but you didn't do better. Jews, you knew the scriptures, but you didn't practice. 
Jews, you pointed at other people, but you didn't do it yourself. What do you think the practical application is for us from this section that says, hey, we need to be thinking about this when we read Romans chapter 2? 3.23. 3.23. We're going to get to 3.23. All of sin and what? Falling short. Okay, that's part of this. And Paul's going there. We're going to get there. Paul's going to say all of sin and falling short. Anything else that's practically applicable for us? Like, hey, I read Romans chapter 2 and Paul's talking about all these things that the Gentiles did. And um, in the end, they really didn't do anything, change anything. We could, in a way, be the Jews because we have we have the word. We come to church. We know better. We tell people to do better. But are we doing better? I think that's exactly it, Alicia, and I'm worried about that. I think we ought to be very concerned when we read Romans chapter 2 that that's not us. What if people say about members, I see your hand, Mike, give me a second. What if people say about members of Churches of Christ, hey, you guys emphasize baptism, and we should, the Bible does. What if we're known for quoting passages on baptism, but we don't focus on what the Bible says about after a person's baptized. Romans 6 and verse 4 says, you ought to rise to walk in newness of life. Your life ought to be changed. What if we know all the passages on baptism, but we like the reform in our own lives? That should, that's what baptism is all about, mind you. Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. We should never be ashamed of that. That's what the Bible says. But what if our lives don't reflect see then we say and we don't practice? What if people come in and say, well, you guys are really high up on singing, and we should be, because the New Testament says Christians are to sing and make melody. And what if we know all the things that shouldn't happen in worship, but they look around the auditorium and they say, well, I can count 20 people not singing at all. I mean, hey, they don't have any innovations. They hadn't violated anything, but they're really not concerned about it. I mean, they know what other people shouldn't do, and they say how other people ought to worship, but what about them? What if we condemn the world for all of her marriage perversions? And hey, a man with a man, and that's easy, and we need to call that out. But what if they look on the lives of people that know Ephesians 5, and how husbands ought to treat wives, and wives ought to treat husbands, and we haven't gone into any unscriptural ideas about marriage, but we've just settled for low-quality marriage. If we have, then what Alicia says is right. We've said, but we don't practice. And I think Romans chapter 2 would be a corrective to us to say, hey, it's great to know the Bible. You're never going to please God. Ignorance is not a fruit of the Spirit, okay? So it's not a good idea to say, I want to know as least amount of Bible as I can so nobody can judge me. God doesn't want that. But beware of making your whole life about what everybody else is not doing. That's not the purpose of knowing the Scriptures. The Scriptures are supposed to draw us into a relationship with God, and then we're supposed to be billboards and trophies of the grace of God that go out and make Christianity attractive to other people so that they become Christians. But if our entire Christian walk is about how right we're getting and how wrong they're not, and we're not practicing, Paul would say, Romans 2 and verse 1, you, old man, are without excuse. You that condemn others, don't you judge yourself? And so we just ought to be very cautious. And Paul's going to get to what Roger mentioned in chapter 3, and that is, in the end, everybody needs the same thing. Romans chapter 1 is supposed to be a sobering punch in the throat for Gentiles who think they can do whatever they want. But Romans chapter 2 is supposed to say to religiously sophisticated people, you're really not any better. And if you allow the Bible to be a mirror to the human heart and soul, God will tell you so. You're not any better. You need the same things. Mike, go ahead. It seems that uh, Paul's message to the Jews in chapter 2 is just, uh, just because you're a child of God doesn't mean you're a child of God unless you're a child of God. <laughs> I agree, child of God. No, okay, I get what you're saying. That's right. I think 
That's right. And we and Mike, if he were writing this, he would have child of God in quotes several times, right? Because you could claim to belong to God just because you have all of the right fixings, but do you really have the deeds to go along with it? Remember I told you at the beginning, in chapter 2, this is all going to come down to deeds. What have you done? And as Mike mentioned, you can't just claim something. You've got to show it. So let's move quickly. Romans 2, 25 through 29. So we can try to get to chapter 3. So Paul's going to get down to another thing that the Jews have prided themselves on in that circumcision. Look at Romans 2, 25. Circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision, but you break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, so... Paul's going to talk about circumcision, and just as a brief note, you might read the New Testament and wonder, why does this come up so much? What's the big deal about being circumcised, cutting off some part of your flesh? Well, it all boils down to this. In Genesis 17, God told Abraham, I want you to take your children and I want you to circumcise them. And from now on, everybody from your family, on the eighth day, when you have a male child, they're to circumcise themselves. Now, circumcision in the Old Covenant was always, always, always meant to be an outward sign that a person belonged to God. But it always presupposed, it was always assumed that a circumcised person was also living the way that they should. It was never meant to just stand on its own like, hey, that I did that one time when I was eight. It was always supposed to be about a changed life. And so Jewish people, and I know you might be wondering, well, how did they know in the ancient world who was circumcised and who wasn't? Well, they had these public baths in the ancient world, and you could just tell, you would know, this person's a Jew, they're not. But over time, what happened with the Jews, they forgot the heart stuff. And they just started looking at the flesh, and if a person was uncircumcised, they'd just say, well, you're not God's person. You really couldn't be spiritual or religious, but they didn't change. Let me show you what I mean quickly. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30, and this happens a lot in the Old Testament. You'll see this, where God talks about the practice of circumcision, but then he'll talk about an individual's heart. So Deuteronomy 30 and notice verse 6. The Lord God, he says, he's given them the law. This is Moses right before he dies, his last speech. The Lord your God will circumcise your what? And your the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. See, he's saying God wants your heart. Go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 4, and let's get somebody else to read verse 4, nice and loud. Jeremiah 4 and verse 4. By the way, in the days of Jeremiah, things are really bad, and the Jews are not living like they should. And notice what he says, Jeremiah 4 and verse 4. Somebody read that. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench you. Okay, so again, he's saying, hey, fix your heart. You went through the whole ritual of physical circumcision, but actually change your heart. And what Paul's getting at in Romans 2, 25 through 27 is <laughs> circumcision only counts if you back it up with the way you live. Question, and this is easy. Had the Jews done that, no or no? No. They didn't. And so circumcision didn't matter. Throughout the New Testament, Paul's going to say circumcision doesn't count for anything unless you change your life. Romans 6, or excuse me, Galatians 6.15, Paul says, In Christ, circumcision isn't what counts, but a new creation. Galatians 5 and verse 6, he says, 
in Christ Jesus, it's not circumcision, but faith at work through love. And so Jews, you can give up the ritual of circumcision. Number one, we're under the new covenant. But number two, even when you all had circumcision, you didn't practice it like you should. So according to God, no one is going to belong to God based merely on their outsides. Nobody. Nobody's going to be able to say, I'm God's person and point to something outwardly and say, well, I know I'm God. This happens all the time. Maybe somebody... Is a, they live in a city where this team, and after the Super Bowl, this happens every year. It's going to happen this year. It happens without fail. Super Bowl's over. Let's just say Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl. The next commercial is going to be, now you can get your Kansas City Chiefs what? T-shirts and hats. If you live in Kansas City, even if you don't watch football, you can buy you a Kansas City Chiefs hat and Super Bowl shirt and walk around and claim victory as if that were your team until somebody starts asking you about football. And you don't know anything about football, but you've got all of the stuff that would associate you with the team, and people will find out pretty quickly that what? You're just a poser, you're a pretender, and then here's so-and-so over here with no shirt, no hat. They know the players, they know the stats, they know all the ins and outs, and this person actually knows more, though you have the outward signs that you do. And Paul's saying, in the end, nobody's going to be made right with God just because of their outside. And then he says, the inner man determines our relationship with God in Romans 2.29. Look at verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. You saw the passages on that from the Old Testament. By the letter, by the spirit, and not by the letter, this person gets their praise not from man, but from God. So what's point, Paul's point to the Jews here? Paul's point is, in the end, circumcision only matters if you do what? Everybody. Circumcision only matters if you do what? Change your life or follow the what? Follow the word. Had the Jews done that? They hadn't done. This is kind of like, for example, let's just say, let's just say a parent was getting ready to go out of town. Parents had three children. They said, hey, we're going out of town. Here's what we want you to do. We're going out of town. Here are your chores. Here are the things we want you to do every day. And when we come back in two weeks, we're going to check on you and see how you've done. Imagine the parents coming home after this two-week trip, and here are the kids standing there. The parents can see no chores have been done. Nothing's been changed. Nothing's been done. And when they show up, all three of the kids line up, and one after another, they say, hey, Mom and Dad, we got something really cool to show you. And Mom and Dad say, well, what? And they start quoting by memory, verbatim, the things on the list. And one child says, well, I translated mine. I can say it in Greek. <laughs> and another one says, well, mine's is highlighted, and I've got all of the major words circled and underlined, and yet the house is filthy. The chores aren't done there. There's nothing good about it. Nothing. They didn't do anything they should have. And if we can say, well, hey, I know Greek. Hey, I've got all the passages underlined. My Bible's colorful. I know all of the things that I should know. And God looks at our lives and he said, but you didn't do the chores. You didn't change. And look, if you used all of those things to help you remember so you wouldn't forget, then they would be a plus. They would be a help. But if you didn't, it was all for naught. It won't impress them. And Paul saying to the Jewish people, you flunked in the end looked good. It's like, and it's going to happen in January, right? There'll be a lot of people that are going to buy workout clothes. They're going to get a gym membership. They're going to have all the cool shoes. But if you don't work out, it doesn't really matter in the end. You might have all of the outward signs that I'm really a person in shape, but you wouldn't run from the couch to the fridge. <laughs> just because you have the outward signs, just because you got the outward signs doesn't mean it, it, it's not a knock against the outward signs. Learn Greek, write in your Bible, underline, but always remember those things are always a means to an end. They're not an end in and of themselves. The Jewish people forgot that. They had circumcision. They could say my flesh is cut, but their heart never was. 
And as Alicia mentioned, and I think this is the corrective for us, because listen, you can read passages like this, and you can become a Jew for the Jews, right? You can read this and say, shame on the Jews. You missed it. That would be us if we're pointing at them. This is about self-reflection and saying, you know what? Nobody's going to be made right with God by human performance. Nobody's going to say, well, I've lived good enough to earn God's favor. And that's Paul in chapter 3. So let's go in seven minutes and try to finish chapter 3. <laughs> Romans 3, 1 through 8. This, this section will be pretty quick. Then what advantage has the Jews or what value is circumcision? Question, by the way, in the Old Testament, did the Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles? Yes. What was their advantage? It's in verse 2. Um, look at verse 2 of Romans 3. Did the Jews have an advantage in the Old Testament? What was their advantage? They had the Bible. Did it help them? It didn't help them. They didn't do what they should. Look at verses 3 down through 8. I'm going to read this section so we can move past it. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. All right, in this section, what Paul basically says is, hey guys, you had the law, you had an advantage, but you didn't do right. And God's going to judge you, and he's right for judging you. And nobody can say, hey, God, that's not fair. Why are you mad at us? Paul says, you had all the evidence, you had all the advantages, but it didn't make you any better. You didn't do what you should, and as a result of that, God's upset with you. All right, let's go to 9 through 20 of Romans 3. Was somebody still writing that? Some people were like, of course, yeah. Think about me. All right, Romans 3, 9 through 20. Um, what then are, are we, verse 9, all right, I'm going to skip, sorry. All right, verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All that turned aside together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are used to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under it, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, this is your verse. I would underline this one. There, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right. Are the Jews better off than the Gentiles? This is easy. Are they better? No. Paul wants to make this point to get us to where we need to see everybody's on the same page. Why aren't the Jews better? Because everybody's a sinner. Nobody's done what's right. And from verse 10 down through verse 18, what Paul does is he dips into their own bag. He quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from all over the Old Testament. In your Bible, if you look at verse 11 through 18, you probably have a bunch of quotation marks around every verse because Paul's saying your own Hebrew Bible shows you all are wicked. You, none of you have done what's right. Nobody behaves like they should. Nobody's done what God wanted them to do. So the Gentiles are going to God's punishment in chapter 1 because they haven't obeyed. But Jewish people, chapter 2, you have too. Everybody's under God's condemnation. Everybody. And just because you might say when you look at your life, well, I've got less tally marks than them, you've got tally marks. And look at what he says in verse 20. Romans 3 and verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified through his sight. And what's the last part of verse 20 say? 
laws and knowledge. What does that mean? It means this. This is important about reading the Old Testament. The Old Testament law was never given to change a person's life. It just simply alerts you to the fact that you're a failure. You ever ride down the street and when you get up to a certain spot, I mean, you're probably going faster than you should be going. And all of a sudden you meet one of those little speedometer things that tells you your speed, right? It says you should be going 55, but it just told you you were going 75. Anybody ever seen that before? That's what Roger's confessing, right? Listen, that speedometer can't modify your behavior. It can just alert you to the fact that you're a lawbreaker. The Old Testament law is never going to help us in this regard. It can tell us that we flunked. But it won't be our spiritual tutor for summer school. The Old Testament law can just tell you, you missed it. Hey, you're going faster than you should. Jewish people, you can study the law. You can read it all day. All it can do is let you know about sin. But look at verse 20. For by the law, nobody's going to be justified. Why? Because everybody's a sinner. And in the end, what you're going to find, if you try to be made right with God by rule keeping, all you are ever going to know is how terrible you've done. All the rules can do is tell you how fast you're going and how fast you should have been going, but they won't help you to get your foot off the gas pedal. So you read that and you're just devastated and you think, well, what's the hope for anybody? If all of us are sinners, nobody can be made right with God by law. Nobody can behave their way into the goodness and grace of God. What is the hope for anybody? Paul says, here it is, Romans 3, 21 through 31. In two minutes, all right, in two minutes, quick. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold. Verse 23 is a well-known verse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul's punchline is in verse 24. And we're justified by grace. Why is salvation by grace through faith? Because that's the only hope for everybody. Everybody needs to come to God by grace through faith because nobody can be justified by their behavior. And what Paul says is, and I'll leave this up here for y'all that want to take notes. He says, guess what? Jews and Gentiles, you're all in the same condition. Verse 27, nobody can stand before God and brag. Nobody's going to get to the judgment day and stand before God and say, move over, let me in. I know I've done everything right and I should get in. The only hope for the whole world salvation by grace through faith. Somebody says, that sounds like I don't have to obey the rules. <laughs> oh no, there are rules to obey. But the rules don't justify you because Paul already said, if we play by those rules, everybody flunks. So how are we going to be made right with God? Trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf and let that transform our lives because the law can only tell you you're a sinner. It can never make you right with God and it was never intended to. The hope of the whole world is salvation by trusting in Jesus and expecting God to be gracious and merciful because he is. And when that happens, wicked Gentiles who never had the Bible and Jewish people who did but didn't obey, 
can all come to God and fall on his mercy and be saved. And in that, everybody can rejoice. All right, thanks for a good Bible class. Appreciate everybody's participation.